Good morning again, Lakeshore. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Welcome to our Smyrna campus and those that are connecting with us online. We're so glad that you're here with us today. Uh, we are celebrating three really big, exciting things today. Uh, and and I, I am just so thrilled to be part of a church that's got so many good things happening. First of all, Smyrna campus, we are celebrating your birthday today. One year ago today, we launched that campus today. Congratulations to you guys. We want to thank all of our staff and volunteers, all of our members at both campuses, because you all helped make it possible for us to launch that campus. We took 60 people from this campus who committed to going down to Smyrna and helping us start that campus, and they committed to it, and they're serving and, and growing down there. They've already doubled in size since we launched that campus in one year's time, so we are so excited and thrilled and thankful to celebrate their birthday today. We are also, as a church, excited today because we, as, a, as an independent Christian church, we follow the pattern of the New Testament on the structure and the organization of the church. And part of that pattern is each congregation had its own elders who, uh, who oversee and direct the affairs of the church. Here at Lakeshore, we currently have an elder team that includes myself and Hugh Coleman and Mike Edwards, Art Laird, and Jim Lowry. But over the past couple of years, we've been praying and seeking God to add some new men to that elder leadership team. And uh, today, I'm excited to introduce to you, guys, come on up, two other men that we approached and we started a process that's been going on now. Just step right up here close. Get tight. Act like you like each other. There you go. We are excited today to present to you Jamie Jenkins and Oscar Valencia, uh, two men that we approached and asked, would you prayerfully consider coming on board with us as part of our elder oversight team? Uh, they agreed to pray about that and seek God on that and talk with their families and pray with their families. They came back to us and said, yes, we do desire uh, to serve in that way. And so that started a process that's been over six months now of prayer and examination and Bible study that they've gone through uh, to prepare for this step. So the, the last step in this process here at Lakeshore is what we're doing today. It's for us as elders, current elders, to recommend these two men to you to serve as elders. Now, over the next two weeks, here's what we're going to ask you to do. Prayerfully consider these two men in light of the qualifications in Scripture. You find those qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1. There's a listing of those qualifications. If for any reason you have scriptural objections or concerns about them serving as an elder, then the process here is you put that in writing, you submit it to our current elders for us to examine and uh, to address. So over the next two weeks, if you have any concerns about that, you can put that in writing and submit that to us. But we ask you to join with us in prayer as over the next couple of weeks, we come to that final decision about adding them to our elder oversight team. Uh, I'm so thankful for these men and their willingness to serve and their family's support in this step that they're willing to take here. Let's pray together with them right now. Father, I just want to thank you for these men and their families. I thank you for the love they have for you. I thank you for the love they have for this church that they've already demonstrated. And, and I thank you for the love they have for their family and for the lost. Father, we know they have a heart for you. And I just pray that you would help us as your people uh, to truly seek you when we take a step like this that is so important to the life of the church. We want you to be glorified, you to be honored in all of this. And I ask your blessing on these men and their families. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. God bless you. Thank you, guys.
Thank you. Two big things already, but wait, there's more. Today we begin a new message series, uh, and this series is called Three Days That Changed the World. It's based on a passage in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 1. Paul says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. Now, that word gospel means good news. That's what the word gospel means. So he says, uh, I want to remind you of the good news the gospel that I preach to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, this good news, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. Now, I want you to underline if you've got your Bibles or, or you've got a tablet or, or something where you can highlight a, a, a phrase in there. Highlight this phrase. He says... I pass this on to you as of first importance. What that phrase means is, this is the most important thing for you, for me, for us as a church. This is first in importance compared to everything else. doesn't mean nothing else is important. It means this is most important among all those things. Okay? He says, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. Paul is saying the most important thing in the history of the world happened in this three-day period that he just described. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the heart, that's the core of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this series is called Three Days That Changed the World. Everything in the world changed dramatically because of the events of these three days that we're going to be examining in this series. And we're going to break it down into to different events, different occurrences. Today we're focusing on the first part of that, and that is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So today's message is He Died. I want us today to break it down into four things that really stand out about the death of Jesus to help us understand why it's of first importance, why it's such a big deal, why it matters so much to us to know that Jesus really did die on that cross according to the Scriptures. And the first thing I want us to see is that it was prophesied ahead of time. You see, Jesus dying on the cross didn't just happen by chance. And it didn't just happen as like God's plan B, right? Uh, plan A didn't work. We, we still sinned. We messed up. He gave us paradise. And, well, oh, no, God didn't get caught off guard by that and say, what do I do now? I guess I'll have to let Jesus die. That's not the way it worked. This was prophesied ahead of time. In 1 Peter 1, beginning with verse 18, it says this, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from our, your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Listen to this verse 20. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. When was the decision made for Christ to die on that cross? Before the world was even created, he had already been chosen 
for that assignment. Isn't it amazing that he created the world anyway? Knowing what was going to be required of Jesus on the cross for the sins of the very people that he would create. And remember, Jesus already existed then as God, and he took part in the creation. He created the very people he was going to have to die on the cross for. Do you get that connection? Do you understand how amazing, how remarkable it is that he would already be chosen for that and still go through with creating us, knowing what it was going to cost him after he created us? All through Scripture, over 300 and something prophecies concerning the Messiah, and a lot of them focus on his death, those three days that changed the world. Uh, Psalm 22 is one of those passages written hundreds of years before the time Christ would appear. And, and I won't read the whole psalm. I'm going to pick out just a few verses here, 16 through 18. It says this, Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Now, there are a lot of details in that prophecy that are fulfilled when Jesus dies on that cross. Uh, it says that he's surrounded by enemies and villains, and certainly that happened as he was hanging on the cross. It says that they would pierce his hands and his feet. In Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 5, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of, it, of us all. Hundreds of years, almost a thousand years before Jesus, that prophecy was given. Now, the amazing thing is this. He, he said, all my bones are on display. Jesus had been flogged before he was put on that cross. His, his flesh had been ripped open. After a flogging with the whip that they used that would cut the flesh open, you could literally see inside the body. You could literally see the bones inside. It says they divided... They divide my clothes among them. When you read the account of the cross, they gambled for the robe that Jesus was wearing that day. They cast lots for it to see who would get it. See how detailed this was? Hundreds of years before it happened. Not only that, but think about this for a moment. He describes his hands and his feet being pierced. Do you realize that crucifixion did not even exist when that was written? It had never been done. As far as we could tell in any history records, the first crucifixion did not take place to hundreds of years after the time of that prophecy. And yet it describes crucifixion in that prophecy. You see, the prophecy of Scripture is powerful evidence to support the reliability of the truth of Scripture, why we can put our trust in what it says, because these prophecies are fulfilled in every minute detail in the life of Jesus. People always want to criticize us trusting in Scripture as if it's, if it's infallible, but, but friends, the evidence is overwhelming that we can trust what the Bible says to be true. 
And prophecy is just one of those major areas of evidence for the reliability of what we now have as Scripture. So, so it was prophesied ahead of time. Crucifixion didn't even exist until hundreds of years later. There was another prophecy closer to the time of Jesus that, that I think, to, closer to the time of his crucifixion, that I think Mary must have thought of, Jesus' mother, when she saw him hanging on that cross. She must have remembered the words of Simeon in Luke chapter 2. They took Jesus like they were supposed to to the temple after he had been born to present him at the temple, to present him to God. That was what the law called for, and they were obedient to what God had told them to do. There was a prophet there named Simeon who said this. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he added this, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. As Mary saw her son be beaten and spit on and nailed to a cross and hung there to die, I'm sure she thought of Simeon's word that a sword would pierce her soul too. Prophecy upon prophecy upon prophecy. Jesus himself, on several occasions while he was here in his ministry, prophesied his own death in great detail. One occasion was Matthew 17, in verses 22 and 23, it says this. When they came together in Galilee, he said to them, The Son of Man, that's how he referred to himself, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. See, they understood at least part of that prophecy. They understood crucifixion. It was around for a while now. They had seen it. They had, they had walked by the bodies hanging on crosses. And, and that day it was capital punishment for major crimes only that the Romans would crucify people. But they did it on a regular basis for capital crimes. So, so Jesus being crucified that day was not the first time any of these people were aware of crucifixion. They had walked by these bodies hanging there bleeding and dying. Some of them rotting and decaying and falling off of the cross. They knew what this meant when Jesus said, I'm going to be crucified. And it broke their hearts to think that Jesus would have to suffer like that. Now, he said he was going to rise on the third day, and I'm sure they were trying to get their heads around that. But that idea of him being crucified, it seems from this passage, was the thing they focused on the most because of the grief they felt when they heard those words. See, they didn't understand the resurrection part until afterwards. They're a lot like us. They didn't quite get everything on the front end. They needed to have more evidence to look back on. And God gave them that evidence by having Jesus appear to them after the resurrection. But it grieved them to think that he would do this. The prophecies of his death set it apart as something unique. Which leads to the second thing I want us to see about the death of Christ today. And that is... It was voluntary. It was totally voluntary. Remember, he was chosen for this when? Before the creation of the world. So for all that time, as God, he could have changed this. He could have changed the plan 
It could have altered what was going to happen. Could have refused to even come here in the flesh. But still he came. In John 10, verse 17 and 18, he said this. Jesus is speaking. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Jesus is telling his disciples, when you see this happen, you have to understand. And they wouldn't quite grasp it at first. We know that because of how they reacted. He wanted them to understand, I am choosing to do this for you. It's by my authority that this is being done. By my choice. Now we know they didn't grasp it because when Jesus was with his disciples in the garden... And he went to pray there the night he was going to be betrayed over to his enemies and arrested there in the garden and taken to be crucified. That night after he prayed, he went back to find his disciples sleeping, remember, three times. And that third time, he says, you need to get up now because I hear them coming to get me. Here they come. And they came out with an armed force to arrest Jesus. Swords and spears, and they were ready for battle when they came out to arrest Jesus. They thought there might be resistance to his arrest. But when they came to arrest Jesus, he did not resist at all. But Peter, we find in Scripture when you put it all together, Peter sees him coming to take his Lord, and what does he do? He pulls out his sword, and he cuts off the ear of one of the high priest assistants that was there to make the arrest. Now, I'm sure Jesus had to be a little bit thankful that Peter wanted to defend him that way, but it was the wrong way. It was the wrong thing to do because, remember, Jesus is volunteering for this death. And so Jesus has to pick up the ear and put it back on the, on the servant's head and, and heal him right there. And he told Peter to put his sword away. That's not the way God was going to deliver his people by force, by military force. That's not the way God had planned for this to happen. There was going to be a different kind of deliverance that was far better than militarily overthrowing the Roman government. This was something far bigger than that that was happening here. And so Jesus was, was showing them that, I know you think you can stop this and maybe you want to stop this, but this is something I volunteered for. I signed up for this before the foundation of the world, that I would come here and die like this for those that I love. For those that have sinned and separated themselves from us. And, and I want to bring them back into a right relationship again. I love what Jesus went on to say in Matthew 26. It's recorded in verse 53 and 54. He said to Peter and the others there. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way now two things you need to understand there jesus could have stopped this right then he could have called for 12 legions of angels now scholars debate over how many angels that would be it doesn't matter it's a bunch 
A legion in the Roman army at that time would have been up to between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So maybe they understood it that way. Twelve times 6,000 angels could have come to his defense then. You think they could have taken Rome? Oh yeah, absolutely. No doubt about it. But Jesus pointed them back to what? Prophecy. Scripture. He said, I want you to get this, and they won't get it till later. You know, hindsight's going to be better. But in hindsight, what you're going to be able to go back and see is all of this was the fulfillment of the prophecies of God. It was the plan of God and the purpose of God all along for him to pray, pay this price on the cross for our sins. It was totally voluntary for Jesus to go to that cross. It's not like he didn't have a choice. But when he had to choose between suffering and dying in that humiliation and you being lost, he chose you. He chose me. That's the choice he voluntarily made when he went to that cross. Well, it was fulfillment of prophecy and it was voluntary. There's another thing I want us to see today about his death and that is it was distinctive. It was distinctive, distinctly set apart in the way that it happened and how he went through all of this. In Luke 23, beginning with verse 44, it says this. Now, it was about noon. Some translations say the hour that they counted it by, which would be noonday. It was about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Matthew 27, verse 51, it says, At that moment when he died there, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Several distinctive things happened when Jesus died on that cross. One of them was the darkness that came over the land from noon till 3 o'clock. Now, scholars all say, well, you know, critics especially will say, well, that just was an eclipse. That's what happened there. It was an eclipse. Well, first of all, even if it was a natural eclipse, wasn't the timing kind of neat? That it just happened at the time Jesus died on the cross? That they had this midday solar eclipse? But here's the problem with that, that astrologers have had a hard time with. Astronomers have had a hard time with. And that is that the Passover was being celebrated at that time. The Passover was only celebrated at a time it occurred at the time of a full moon. And there's never been a solar eclipse in the way it works at the time of a full moon. Ever. They don't happen then. So why that day? Particularly, did they have darkness? In the middle of the day. The word translated darkness there means extreme darkness. It got really dark in the middle of the day as Jesus died on that cross. And I am certain it got people's attention. I am certain they realized something is going on here. This is not normal. This is not just an average, everyday thing happening here. See, crucifixions had happened. That was normal. But this wasn't normal. This darkness when this guy was crucified. Happening in the middle of the day like that. And that wasn't the only thing. 
It says, when he died there, the earth shook. Now, an earthquake, again, natural phenomenon. But look at the timing of the earthquake. Right when Jesus breathes his last, there's this earthquake that occurs. There's darkness, and the earth shakes. And I don't know about you, but I would have been scared. I would have been really scared that we messed up really bad. I think that was the whole point, don't you? God was saying, look at what you've done to my son. And then it says the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And it specifically says in Matthew's account, it was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, some people try to argue about the earthquake and how maybe the temple, but the temple didn't crumble. That's, it didn't happen because the temple crumbled. That, that's not what happened here. The temple was still intact after the earthquake. But the curtain in the temple that separated the, the holy of holies from the holy place, that curtain was there and it was symbolic. It was symbolic of the division between the human race, God's people, Israel, and God's presence. There was a barrier that it represented between God and man. And the barrier was sin. That curtain represented the sin that divided us, separated us from God. You see, God is a perfect, pure, holy God. And no sin can be in His presence at all. And this curtain represented that. And this curtain was, was huge. And it was thick. It was over four inches thick according to their measurements. The material of the curtain was over four inches thick. That would not tear easily, my friends. And it wasn't torn from the bottom up as if some man went in there and cut it and tore it up. It was torn from top to bottom. And it was torn to represent, to symbolize what Jesus was doing on that cross. You see, his death on the cross was removing the barrier that separated us from God. He took it says the sins of the world, the iniquity of us all upon himself on that cross. So the only thing separating us and God had now been removed by his death on that cross. Which meant that through Jesus and what he did for us there, we can now approach God and be in the presence of God. Where before we never could. We couldn't dwell with him because of our sins. <laughs> Some other Amazing phenomenon happened. One of the most amazing, we don't talk about a whole lot, was this. It says that the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. It's kind of a zombie apocalypse going on. Only these weren't zombies. This is not walking dead. It says they were raised to what? Life. And after the resurrection, what happened? Grandma showed up at the door. She'd been dead for years. Pretty impressive, right? God was showing the power over death that Jesus was displaying when he died on that cross and went into that tomb and rose on the third day. Showing that in Christ, life, life is the power that he holds and he can give it and resurrect even those that are dead. Jesus had displayed that power before, but now it's displayed in connection with his, his death on that cross and his resurrection. There was another distinctiveness about his death, and that's this. Those that saw his death were changed by it. It changed hearts. 
even some of the hardest hearts. You remember one of the thieves that were thieves that were dying beside him on the cross? One of the thieves recognized that this was a righteous man dying on that cross. The other still rejected Jesus, but one of them, one of them asked Jesus to show him favor. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, even the heart of that hardened criminal. See, when it says thief there, sometimes we don't think like it's a big deal. Maybe he just stole something, but this is capital punishment that he's suffering. This was somebody who was a hardened criminal. They didn't just crucify anybody for anything. This was a hardened criminal. But when he witnessed Jesus and how they treated Jesus and how he responded, his heart was changed and drawn to Jesus. There was another one. Remember that Roman centurion? He had been there through the whole thing. He may have been one of the ones who held him down or drove the nails into the hands of the feet. But when he saw Jesus go through what he went through, and he saw the darkness, felt the earthquake, he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Hearts who witnessed this were changed by what Jesus was doing on that cross. It was powerful. It had amazing, amazing impact. There's another that we'll talk about next week named Joseph of Arimathea, who we find in Scripture had become kind of a secret disciple. Remember, he, he, he believed in Jesus, but he was afraid of the other. He, he was a religious leader. He was uh, among the, the, the teachers of the law. And, and he didn't want the others to find out that he believed in Jesus and followed Jesus. But after Jesus, he saw Jesus down on that cross. He came publicly and said, I want his body, and I want it to be put in my tomb. I'm going to give it to him. He became public in his support of Jesus. You see, hearts were changed when they saw Jesus die on that cross. It was prophesied. It was voluntary. It was distinctive. But the last thing I want you to see, the most important thing about this death is this. It was atoning. It was an atoning death. The word atonement is kind of a scriptural word. We don't use it a lot in everyday life. Atonement is, is one of those words that, that you have to know a little bit about how the words are put together to understand its meaning. Atonement, actually, when you break it down, is at one meant. What the word atonement means is what Jesus did on the cross enables us to come back into a right relationship with God and be at one with Him again. At one meant. Jesus' death on the cross brought atonement to us if we believe in and accept that payment that he made for us there. In Hebrews 9, verse 22, it says this, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with, the blood, with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no what? Forgiveness. You see, the law did not bring forgiveness of sin. It it exposed sin and the need for payment for sin. That's what the law did. And, and Jesus' death on the cross was what God planned before even creation itself as a payment to be made for our atonement, for us to be able to be brought back to being one with God again. Sometimes critics say this, and other religions reject, uh, they believe, a lot of them believe that Jesus existed. And they like to say he was a good teacher, right? I mean, I mean uh, Buddhism says that, the uh, Hindu faith says that, uh, 
uh, uh, Muslim Islam says that Jesus was a good teacher and a prophet, but they all reject the crucifixion as something God would never do. Never, never would God allow that to happen to him. See, they reject that part because it's, it's so foreign to them that God would allow people to treat him that way. And here's their argument. If he's God, he could just forgive us anyway. And that sounds like a good argument on the surface until you dig a little deeper. You see, what makes God God is not only his pure holiness, and it's not just his love, it's also his justice. You see, for God to forgive without justice would be unfair to everyone. And it would make him less than the God that he is. We all cry out for justice, don't we? That's part of what's happening in our culture right now. Some people feel like they, they haven't had justice and they're, they're wanting justice to be done. And something bad happens and everybody cries out for justice. I was amazed at how many people cried out when they said they were going to cut down the cherry trees in Nashville. What an awful thing. While we kill thousands of babies every day. Where's the cry for that? But everybody wants justice, what they think is justice, right? What they believe to be justice. And if God's going to be a righteous God, then there has to be justice. And God says the wages of sin is what? Death. A payment has to take place for justice to occur. And the payment had to be death. It had to be the shedding of blood. But here's the problem. Who can make the payment for us? We've all done what? Sinned. We all owe the payment ourselves. We could not substitute ourselves for anybody else because we all have our own sin. The only one who could do that would be one without sin. And Jesus was tempted in all points just like we are yet without sin. He's the only one who could be the substitute atoning payment for the sins of others. In 1 Peter 2.24 it says, He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, otherwise there is no healing and we have to suffer for our own sins. But through his wounds, through the price he paid, we can be healed of the sin of our lives. He is the atoning sacrifice for us. In John 19, he records for us the final moments of Jesus on the cross. And in verse 28, it says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished... And so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Remember, he's still pointing out all the fulfilled prophecies here. Okay, And so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. There's a prophecy that says he would thirst and be given wine vinegar. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, when we read the words, it is finished, it's easy to just read over that 
and not understand the full impact of what he's saying. He's not just saying the crucifixion is finished. He's saying the plan of salvation. The plan God had before the foundation of the world to offer the sacrifice. All the timing and orchestration of all the events throughout history that led to this moment. All of that was coming down to this moment within those three days that changed the world. This is the moment God finished his plan of payment and atonement for our sins. When Jesus died on that cross. It is finished is really one word in the original language. To tell us die. It's the same word that's used twice in that passage. The first part, verse 28, knowing that everything had now been finished, it's the word to tell us die. And then later on, Jesus said, after receiving the drink, it is finished before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It's to tell us die again. That's an interesting word. It can be literally translated, it is finished. But it was a word that was used commonly in their culture for years. And you know where you found it? On receipts. When a financial transaction had taken place. And, it, and it's like what we might put on there today. Put a stamp on it or print over it that says paid in full. No debt owed anymore. You are released from the obligation and the debt when tetelestai has occurred, when full payment has been made. Friends, what we remember today in this three-day period is that Jesus hanging on that cross, should we choose to accept what he did there for us and put our trust in that, is the payment you need and I need, and it's the only payment sufficient for us to have our debt of sin canceled before God. There is no other payment that's adequate. You can't do enough good things. You can't be a nice enough person. You can't, you can't give enough money. You can't do enough good works in the community. You can't have enough benevolence in your heart to undo the price that needs to be paid for your sin. And neither can I. There's only one adequate payment, and it's the blood of the perfect Son of God that He gave on that cross. And that's why the Scripture says, There is no name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. He is the only way. So when Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me, what he's saying is, is my payment for your sin is the only adequate payment to atone for your sin. And you can't come to the Father with your sin, so the only way to the Father is through Jesus. He's the only way. You can follow any set of rules, any religion you want to follow, and it will never get you back to the Father and make you right with him until payment is made through Jesus and you accept that payment in full for your sin. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that today we've been reminded of the amazing love that you've demonstrated to us. That before even the foundation of the world, before even creation was spoken into existence, you knew what it was going to cost you.
And yet you spoke the words anyway. And you made human beings in your image. And you knew that we would sin and rebel and we would require the sacrifice of your son to be at one with you again. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here today that has never understood or accepted that, that maybe today, through the working of your spirit, through your word, their heart has been changed. They would understand their need for that payment. And even today they could come, turning from their sin, seeking forgiveness, being obedient in baptism. They can be washed clean. They can participate in that death, burial, and resurrection through water baptism. And they can rise up to a brand new life, washed clean with the indwelling of your spirit being given to them, the spirit that gives them life forever in your presence. Father, thank you for the gift of your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.